We just confessed in the Apostles' Creed that we believe in Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, descended into hell, and rose again from the dead. In the litany in our prayer book that we prayed for our Ash Wednesday service this past week, we said the words, By thy fasting and temptation, good Lord, deliver us. How are we delivered by Jesus' experience in the wilderness? Is it not simply the death and resurrection of Christ that we confessed in the Apostles' Creed that delivers us? What's the significance of all of these other stories in the gospel narratives that we, that we have about Jesus and his life and ministry? Did Jesus have to be tempted? Did he have to do miracles? Did he have to preach the sermons that he did? What is the significance of these gospel narratives, and how is it that they contribute, as our litany says, to our salvation? So I want to address these questions by asking just three more. And these three questions will serve as an outline for our sermon this morning. So first is, who exactly is being tempted in the wilderness? In Matthew 4. Second, why is he being tempted? And third, what is the nature of this temptation? So first, who is being tempted? Well, the easy answer here, of course, is Jesus. But who is Jesus? Well, we might say he's the Son of God. But what does that mean? The Gospel of Luke presents Jesus Christ as the Son of God and traces his lineage in Luke back to Adam, who it says is the Son of God. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus is the second Adam. But what about in our Gospel, Matthew, today? In Matthew, Jesus is presented as Israel's Messiah. His lineage in chapter 1 is traced from Abraham through the royal line of David, and Jesus is presented as Israel's king. He's the son of God as Israel was the son of God in the Old Testament. This is set up for us perfectly in the preceding passage, uh, passages in Matthew's gospel. Follow this with me, if you would, for just a moment. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22... When Moses is confronting, or to confront uh, Pharaoh, Yahweh instructs Moses what he's to say. He says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. That's Exodus 4.22. He goes on and says, If you refuse to let him go, Pharaoh, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Pharaoh had taken God's son, and for that, Pharaoh would pay with the life of his own son. 
The prophet uh, Hosea relays the words of Yahweh in chapter 11 of that book when he laments, quote, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, Hosea continues, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. It is this uh, verse that Matthew quotes in chapter 2 of his gospel. Except Israel in Matthew's gospel is the new Egypt out of which the Son, the new Son, Jesus Christ, must be called. Out of Egypt, I've called my Son when he flees uh, to Egypt from Israel, from Herod. Another passage, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 20. Yahweh says, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him. Interestingly enough, just five verses prior in Jeremiah to the verse I just read, Jeremiah 31, 15, we have the verse that Matthew quotes in regard to Herod killing the baby boys in Bethlehem about Rachel weeping for her children. So Jesus is being presented by Matthew as the new son of God. Israel was the son of God, but the son of God who failed over and over again. Whereas this new son of God, Jesus Christ, is going to retrace the history of Israel in his ministry and is going to succeed everywhere that the first son, Israel, had failed. Thus, in Matthew 3.17, the last verse Before our gospel passage today on the temptation of Christ, what does it say? It's Yahweh speaking, a voice uh, being heard from heaven. And he's saying, and behold, uh, a voice went out from heaven. It says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God was not well pleased with his firstborn son, Israel, but with Jesus the eternal Son of God, he is well-pleased. And upon this pronouncement of God's pleasure, the, the pleasure that he takes in Jesus Christ, the Son of God was led away by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Chapter 4, verse 1 of Matthew. So who's being tempted? The Son of God. The Son of God who this Son must succeed where the old son has failed. Second, why is Jesus being tempted? The spiritual war being fought between Jesus and Satan in the wilderness is the initial confrontation that will set up Jesus' future victories. On June 6, 1944, the Allied forces in World War II commenced Operation Overlord launching an invasion of the beaches of Normandy, France. Approximately 1,500 Higgins boats carrying troops and equipment approached the beaches that day and were opened to a rain of bullets. 
from the German machine gunners attempting to prevent the opening of a second front for the Allied powers. The Allies suffered over 9,000 casualties that day. But the mission was accomplished. The objective had been attained. The Germans were driven back and the Allies established a foothold in northern France from which they would be able to continue to bring more troops and supplies across the English Channel without fear of German attack. There were many battles yet to be fought, including the largest battle of the war, the Battle of the Bulge, where the Germans threw everything they had in a last-ditch effort at the Allied line as it advanced toward Berlin. The Germans inflicted heavily casualties on the Allies at the Battle of the Bulge, forcing them to retreat for miles, creating this huge bulge in the Allied line from which the battle gets its name. Yet, in the end, the Nazi army lost momentum as the vehicles ran out of gas. The Allies were able to regroup, and they successfully reformed the line and advanced to Berlin, forcing the German surrender. Jesus' confrontation with Satan in the wilderness was like D-Day. It didn't end the war, but it was a turning point in the war. Subsequent operations in Europe could be conducted in World War II because of the beachhead gained at Normandy. Subsequent victories, likewise, by Jesus would occur because he had withstood Satan's attacks and defeated him in the wilderness. Why could Jesus cast out demons? Because Jesus had already cast out the demon in the wilderness, the head of demons in the wilderness. What does Jesus say later in Matthew's gospel when the Pharisees accuse him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub? Remember that story, Matthew 12? Jesus says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Verse 29, Matthew 12. Who's the strong man? Satan is the strong man. How is it that he can enter the strong man's house and plunder his house? Because the strong man had already been bound and defeated. Jesus can cast out demons because he's defeated the prince of demons in the wilderness by resisting his temptations. The strong man was bound. And it was his right to go throughout Judea now, casting out demons, raising the dead, making the lame to walk, the blind to see, mopping up the enemy's troops. Even though Satan thought he could throw everything he had at Jesus in the end to defeat him by killing him, much like the Nazis in the Battle of the Bulge. Satan exhausted his resources. Christ overcame the powers of darkness and rose again, defeating death itself. So that's one reason why is Jesus tempted? Because this confrontation in the wilderness sets up all of the future victories and miracles of Jesus, plundering the house of the strong man as the strong man has now been bound. 
Second reason why Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness was because this confrontation will define the nature of Jesus' ministry. What kind of ministry is Jesus going to have? Is he going to be the Messiah that Israel wants or the Messiah that Israel needs? Bible scholar N.T. Wright, in his book, Jesus and the Victory of God, writes, The pull of hunger, the lure of cheap and quick success, the desire to change the vocation of Jesus, that is, to be the light of the world, into the vocation to bring all nations under his powerful rule by other means, all of these would easily combine into the temptation to doubt the nature of the vocation of which he had been sure at the time of John's baptism, end quote. Jesus had been baptized and given a job to do, and the Father says, this is my Son, with whom I'm well pleased. But first, he had to be tested. As the writer of Hebrews says, although he was God's Son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus was tested, tested in the wilderness, not so that we could have a proof text to support the notion that Christ is a perfect sacrifice, which he is, and that can be found all over Scripture, but rather to demonstrate the nature of his entire ministry. He would minister in complete dependence on the will of God. So, Having looked at who was tempted and why he was tempted, let's consider third, the nature of the temptations thrown at Christ. What is he really being tempted to do? Satan's first temptation of Christ is to turn stones into loaves of bread. Verse 3 says, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become Loaves of bread. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with Jesus performing a, a miracle and turning stones into bread. Notice, though, the if clause on the front end of Satan's suggestion here. If you are the Son of God. Satan repeat, repeats this phrase in the second temptation. And this phrase is used uh, again in the Gospels. We'll come back to that point in a minute when it's used again. It's, I think it sheds light on what um, is the nature of Jesus' temptation here. But we might read this phrase, if you are the Son of God, we might read that as if Satan is challenging Jesus to prove that he's really the Son of God, the Messiah. But I don't think that's what he's doing. Satan knows who Jesus is. Jesus knows that Satan knows who he is. And to go even further, Satan knows that Jesus knows, that Satan knows who he is. The temptation, is here, the temptation here is not that Jesus feels like he needs to prove himself to Satan. So this really should be read another way. Instead of, if you are the Son of God, prove it by turning these stones into bread. Instead of that, how about, if you are the Son of God, use your unlimited power 
in such a way as to satisfy your physical needs and desires at this moment. Jesus had been fasting in the wilderness and is hungry. And Satan comes to him and says, Since you're the Messiah, after all, why not feed yourself? Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is being tempted here to break his fast. He's not complaining about his lack of bread like the people of Israel did in the wilderness. He's already passing that test. But maybe, maybe the reason Jesus isn't complaining is because he actually has the power to call bread down from heaven or to turn stones into bread at any time that he wants to. If you could supply food for yourself out of thin air at any moment, would you deserve a lot of credit for being a content person? Probably not. So the question is, will Jesus break his fast here? Or will Jesus submit to the Father's will and trust his Father to supply his need? Or will he take the power that he does have and say, I can supply my needs whenever I want, and I'll, I'll do it now. I'll use my powers to feed myself, to satisfy my desires, to satisfy my physical needs. By quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, Jesus is telling Satan that he will not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from his father's mouth. Two chapters later, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray as part of the Sermon on the Mount. And they are to use the petition, give us this day our daily bread. A prayer of humble dependence upon God's provision. Furthermore, Jesus will never use his power in order to satisfy himself but always in service to the needs of others. Later in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 14, Jesus does create bread. He multiplies, multiplies five loaves and two fishes to feed a crowd of 5,000 men, plus women and children. Chapter later, Matthew 15, he feeds another crowd of 4,000 with seven loaves and a few fish. He performs these miracles, creating bread, but why? To feed others, not himself. When the people respond by trying to make him king, he resists and runs away. Why? Because he's defeated Satan's temptation in the wilderness. He's not going to use his status as the Son of God, or his power as the Son of God to perform miracles that would enable him to take political control. He did not use his power to satisfy his own needs and desires while alone in the desert, and he won't do it in front of a crowd either. Rather, when the crowd comes looking for him in Capernaum, the day after feeding the 5,000, Jesus tells them, that it is he 
who is the bread of life. In Matthew 26, verse 26, it is Jesus who gives bread to his disciples and says what? Take, eat, this is my body. As Jesus says in Matthew 20, verse 28, the Son of Man came not to serve, or not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ resists Satan's temptation to use his power to serve. Uh, he doesn't use his power to serve his own bodily needs, but instead will give his body to be broken as the bread of the world. In verses 5 and 6, Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem and tempts him by saying, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus demonstrated His dependence upon the Word of God in the first temptation. So Satan's tactic here in the second temptation is to quote the very word of God against Jesus. Satan not only knows scripture, but is willing to use it to tempt Jesus to sin. Satan quotes Psalm 91, which promises that God will deliver the righteous one. Satan is saying, Jesus, you are the righteous one. You're the son of God with whom the father is well pleased. He's promised to deliver the righteous one in his word. Do you want to prove that God is well pleased with you? Throw yourself off this building and angels will come to rescue you. You can be reassured of the father's favor toward you. It's one thing for the Father to use some words at your baptism, but wouldn't you like some assurance that the Father will actually save you? Furthermore, you can also demonstrate the Father's favor toward you by creating a spectacle. People will witness legions of angels coming to rescue you. How could they not believe if they saw this? The Jews in, the, in uh, Jerusalem, they knew their Old Testament. Perhaps many would recognize this spectacle as a fulfillment of Psalm 91 and accept Jesus as their Messiah. Satan says, do this if you are the Son of God. In Matthew 26, Verse 53, when Jesus is betrayed and arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter pulls out his sword and slices off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest. What does Jesus say in response? He says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? If we look over at Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 23, verse 35, the people and the rulers 
use the words of Satan in this temptation as they jeer at Christ hanging on the cross. If you are the Son of God, save yourself. Not understanding all the while that Jesus, the righteous man of Psalm 91, could call 12 legions of angels to rescue him. Jesus would not give the people a sign by jumping from the temple and calling on angels to catch him. Instead, he would give them the sign of Jonah in Matthew 12. He would lay down his life and spend three days in the ground, trusting, again, his father's provision, trusting that his father would raise him to life again. Jesus will not, be put, uh, will not put God to the test. He does not challenge his father to rescue him before the time is fulfilled. He doesn't say, I need some more assurance that I'm going to be raised from the dead here. Uh, let's do a practice run. He relies on his father, that his father will raise him up. For the third time, Satan tempts Jesus by taking him to a very high mountain and showing him the kingdoms of the earth in their glory. Satan says, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, we might ask ourselves how this could be a real temptation. Of course, Jesus isn't going to bow down to Satan. Yet, this may be the greatest temptation of them all. This is why Jesus does not quote another verse right away or continue the dialogue, but simply tells Satan to be gone. Jesus will face this temptation again in his ministry, and will it will come from one of his own disciples. Matthew 16. Peter takes Jesus aside after Jesus revealed that he would have to suffer and die and would be raised again on the third day. And Peter says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus responds to Peter the same way he responded to Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. The temptation here is that Jesus perhaps would be acknowledged as the ruler of all the kingdoms of the world without having to go through the cross. God promised that his son would rule the nations. Psalm 110. Psalm 110, one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. The Lord says to my Lord, the Yahweh Lord says to my Lord, David writes, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh, the Lord, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. These are promises to the Messiah that David is writing about. 
Continuing in the Psalm 110, the Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. You, Jesus, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The crown that is promised here laid, however, on the other side of the cross. The temptation that Satan is bringing to Jesus is that perhaps Christ could claim his right to be the Messiah and the ruler of the world by avoiding the cross. Thus, whether it is Satan or it is the leader of his apostles who suggests that the cross uh, may not be necessary, Jesus gives the same reply. Get away from me. Get behind me. He will not even consider veering from his Father's will. There is no shortcut. There is no easy way out for Jesus. Jesus goes to the cross and he dies. And as he's hanging there on the cross, Matthew tells us in verse 54 of chapter 27 that the centurion in charge of overseeing the execution and those who were with him were in awe. And what did they say? Truly, this was the Son of God. So, throughout Matthew, if we understand the temptation of chapter 4, um, there are connections all throughout the book of Matthew. Jesus doesn't turn those stones into bread, but he does make bread later, right? Jesus doesn't throw himself off of the temple, but he could have thrown himself off the cross and the angels would have rescued him. Jesus is offered the kingdoms of the world and Messiah is presenting him as the Messiah, the king of the world. And Ironically enough, it's even as he's dying on the cross that a soldier and Roman soldiers recognize him as such. So what's the application here for us today? We cannot replicate Christ's sacrifice. We're not obligated to go on a 40-day fast in the wilderness. Such an act would not make us more worthy or meritorious of Christ's saving grace. But we should desire to participate in the life of Christ. Just as the apostles were not excluded from the kingdom of God because they abandoned Jesus in the garden and at the cross, God, they weren't kicked out of the kingdom of God. Yet, do you want to be like the apostles who try to separate themselves from Jesus in the time of his passion? Or like the women, like Mary, who stayed there at the foot of the cross, trying to be as close as they could to Jesus, even in the midst of his suffering and death? Christ has bid us, after all, to take up our cross and to follow him. 
as his followers, united to him by faith and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we should be eager to participate in the life of Christ. According to Romans 6, we have participated with Christ's death and resurrection in baptism. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, it says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Though Christ was sacrificed once and for all on the cross for us, we continue to participate in that once-for-all sacrifice through the sacraments. It's our union with Christ that allows us to draw near to God and have fellowship with Him. So as we draw near by virtue of our union with Christ, we participate in His life, death, and resurrection. As we observe this Lenten season, let's also participate in Christ's fast and temptation out of a desire to be with him and more like him. By thy fasting and temptation, good Lord, deliver us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the word that you give us, the account that you give us in the gospel, particularly today in the gospel of Matthew. And we thank you, Lord, that you accomplished everything that was necessary for us, that there was no wasted motion by Jesus. Every miracle every temptation, every struggle, every prayer that he prayed in the mountains, every storm, every, uh, every bit of suffering, every stroke cast on his back, every punch, every indignity, every aspect of Christ's life was done for us and for our salvation. And so, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us and empower us not to try to take on the sufferings of Christ as if we could bear them in any way or through them merit your kingdom but that we would desire to be with Christ, to participate in his life, in his death, to be so closely tied as we, uh, as the vine to the branches, that we might uh, be bound to Christ in all aspects of his ministry, both in the wilderness, on the cross, out of the grave, or his glorious ascension. And we ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Our reflective hymn is number 608.